A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Tampa Bay Lightning are now just two wins away from their second Stanley Cup in less than 10 months. As they beat the Montreal Canadiens 3-1 at Amelie Arena on Wednesday night. In a game that uh, Montreal actually probably was the better team in. But when you have a goalie like Andre Vasilevsky. And, and, and the Lightning played they played pretty well defensively. Uh, that's not the narrative you hear from some of the media. And, and uh, particularly those out of Canada. Uh, you know, It was not the Lightning's best effort by any means. But I thought defensively they were pretty committed and did pretty well. The puck was like a grenade on their sticks most of the night. Uh, they their their passing was off. Their puck possession, their getting it out of the zone. Um, they just nothing was crisp all night. Uh, it was it was just one of the, they were, it was like they were fighting the puck the whole night. Uh, but they you know when you have Andre Vasilevsky who stopped forty two out of forty three shots uh, and. And, and to be honest, so Montreal's scored now two goals in the first two games. Both goals was a double deflection off two Lightning players. Both of them. Those are the only two shots that Andre Vasilevsky has given up to the Montreal Canadiens in the first two games. Double deflections off two Lightning players. Andre Vasilevsky has been incredible in this series so far, in the two games. Uh you know, further cementing that he's the best goalie in the world. Uh, they killed off a four-on-three in, in this game. Uh, they uh, just, like, the the second period is where I thought Montreal, the first period was, Montreal had the shot advantage, what was it, 13-6, to six, I think, in the first period. And they were playing better than the Lightning overall, particularly just the Lightning's puck possession and, and, and the passing. And like we said the passes weren't tape to tape. Uh, it just felt like everything was was bouncing off their sticks. I mean, Nikita Kucherov was fumbling the puck all over the ice. Um, it just wasn't crisp. Even Braden Point had some fumble problems. It just wasn't very crisp. But the second period, Montreal really kind of took control. They had 16 shots in that period. Um, they, they started, so they had a power play to start the period that carried over. And for the first six minutes or so of that period, they just were relentless and, and were pushing and had all the momentum from that power play. Even though the lightning had killed off the power play, Montreal had all, uh, all the possession, but then you saw the Sorelli line on the ice and they started cycling the puck and they cycled it and cycled it. And eventually Anthony Sorelli shoots it from the point with a Jan Ruda screen in front. So just to show you how the cycle goes, Sorelli, who would normally be in front of the net, is the one taking the shot from the point, while Jan Ruda is the one setting the screen in front of Carey Price. And I don't think Price ever saw the shot. I think it deflected off one of the, the, the Montreal players, too, just slightly, enough to squeeze by um, uh, Carey Price. And so also now it's one nothing Montreal, even though... Montreal or one nothing Tampa, 
Tampa Bay, even though Montreal is dominating play at this point. And, and things are going pretty well for the Lightning. Then Mikhail Sergachev, about three to four minutes later, takes an interference penalty as he shoved uh, Lekkinen into the boards. You could make a case it wasn't a penalty. Um, maybe it's a dangerous play. It was interference, uh, although both guys were going for the puck. I mean, they ha- they weren't at the puck yet, so to shove him like that, it is interference, which is what they called. And Nick Suzuki scores on that power play off two Lightning players. Uh, I think it went off of, uh, I don't remember who the forward was. Maybe it was Sorelli. Um, I th- yeah, Sorelli, and then I think it went off McDonough. And a double deflection to get past Andre Vasilevsky. Now it's 1-1. And Montreal kind of carries play for a lot of the rest of the period. But with about five seconds to go in the second period, Blake Coleman steals the puck, makes a beautiful pass to enter the zone to get around the defenseman, and then throws it over to Blake Coleman, who dives. It's funny how we've seen this again. Dives to knock the puck past Carey Price. At the time, the clock said three-tenths of a second, and it actually ended up being 1.1 seconds left in the period. And now, all of a sudden, in a game that, that Montreal has dominated for the first two periods, outshot the Lightning 29-13, to 13, played a better game overall, and they're down 2-1 to one on that last-second play that Montreal should have just they had the puck at center ice, should have just chipped it in and let the period end. And instead, Barclay Goodrow, and then over to Blake Coleman makes a play. And you almost kind of felt like that was the dagger in the game. I mean, you still had 20 minutes to go. Montreal's still playing well. But it just had that backbreaker feel to it that, you know, Montreal is playing their best game. The Lightning are not on their game, unlike in game one. And all of a sudden, now you're going down into the third period, down 2-1. to and Andre Vasilevsky is stopping everything you're throwing at him, essentially. They come out in the third period. Um, it's, you know, Montreal's, uh, the third period Montreal was, you know, they, I mean, they had more shots and they're pushing, but I didn't think a lot of their chances were extremely dangerous in the third period. I thought the Lightning played, up, the, the third period I thought was their best period overall, to be honest. Um, I, I thought they, I, th- I think that goal at the end of the second kind of rejuvenated them, and even though they weren't playing their best, they have a lead, and so let's go lock it down, which the Lightning have done very well. If you remember, they were 28-0 in the regular season when they had a lead going into the third period. Uh, they've been very good in the playoffs, although they have lost twice in doing that. Uh, and then Andre Palat, so Edmondson with about, what, four four twenty to go, four eighteen, I think is when the goal was scored, makes a blind pass to Petrie, but Andre Palat intercepted it and threw it off of Carey Price into the net as Carey Price was watching Nikita Kucherov go by in front of the net the other way, never thinking that a Lightning player would steal the puck back there and, and score. Then it was 3-1, and at that point you knew the game was over. And the Lightning, with a two-games-to-one series lead over the Montreal Canadiens, they now head to Montreal for games three and four on Friday and Monday night, uh, two off days in between. But Montreal has to be going... I mean, what can we do? I, you know, I think Montreal played a very good game. Their mistakes ended up in the back of their net. You know, they, they, the turnover right before the end of the second period, the turnover that Andre Palat scores on for the third goal. I mean, you know, all three of the, the goals they gave up, the Sorelli maybe not off a mistake, uh, but, you know, 
they're just cycling and cycling and cycling and, and, and made a long shift. And so, but the Lightning showed they were the better team. I, I think. Look, you look at the rosters, you look at the teams, you look at the experience, you look at the way they play. There's no question that the Lightning are the better team. Now, does that mean they're going to win every game? No. Does that mean you're going to win a series? Not necessarily. But when the Lightning plays their game, I don't see how Montreal can beat them. Tonight, the Lightning didn't play their game fully. And yet Montreal still couldn't beat the Lightning. And that's what, if you're, if you're the Canadian fans, you've got to be going, what do we got to do? What's going you know? And, and look, Montreal's a Cinderella story to be here. They were the 18th best team record-wise this year. They're a good team. They're getting better, but they're not at the Lightning's level at this point. And, and I think that's shown through the first two games where the Lightning now have an 8-2 to two goals advantage. And like I said, both goals they gave up were went off of two Lightning players before it got past Andre Vasilevsky, who was incredible, by far the, the best player on the ice, uh, definitely for the Lightning. Uh, Phil, Phil Esposito in his postgame show wanted to give Vasilevsky all three stars. He didn't. He gave Coleman and Sorelli each a star. But um, the Lightning, uh, J- you know, John Cooper called, said, and I'll paraphrase this. He said there was a lot of remarkable individual efforts on the ice tonight. Vasilevsky, Coleman, and a few others. But it was an unremarkable team performance tonight. And I, I think that, that actually sum, sums up the game pretty well. Is The Lightning were fighting things all night, but they hung in together as a team, uh, even though... Th- you wouldn't say it was their best performance by any stretch, uh, but they battled and they they kept in the game. I mean, when Montreal would get chances, there was a lot of block shots too. Um, I thought Mikhail Sergachev played a really good game defensively. Um, they just had troubles controlling the puck all night, and that led to a lot of Montreal possessions. And I, you know, but but Andre Vasilevsky was good. There was three odd man rushes in the first period. He stopped them all. Um, you know, so I, teams that lead the Stanley Cup Finals two nothing in the history of the Stanley Cup Final forty six and fifty one out of fifty one, so forty six and five, and over a ninety percent win clip for that. And when you look at this series, knowing that the Lightning are the better team going in, I, I, you have to really like the Lightning. I mean, Montreal now has to win four of the next five against Tampa Bay, including, and two of those five are going to be back in Tampa if it goes that far. Now, the next two are in Montreal. That should help Montreal give them a boost. Now, there's only going to be 3,500 fans in the stands as the, the health board there rec- uh, rejected their their ask of, of increasing the capacity to 10,500. So only 3,500 fans will be in the stands. But they'll be passionate, and they'll be as loud as you know thirty five hundred fans can be for Montreal. Montreal will be in their home beds and and, and that the lightning are going to be in the hotel, and I think they're pretty much stuck in the hotel and can't really do anything. It's kind of like the bubble all over again, so um you know how that affects things and, and helps or hurts you know time will tell on that, but uh the lightning sitting pretty in good shape, just two wins away from a second Stanley Cup in less than a year. As if you remember, last season the Stanley Cup was awarded at near the end of September. They won it September 28th. And now they could win it as early as July 5th if they win. 
Game seven is July 11th if it goes that far. So the Lightning uh, in good shape, up two games to none, even despite not playing their best game. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Rays, meanwhile, uh, woof on their performance on Wednesday as they lose in Washington 15-6. to not a good performance. I, I, I will admit I didn't see a lot of the game as, as getting ready for the Lightning uh, broadcast and all that. So um, I know that initially they were having Drew Rasmussen uh, open the game and Waka was supposed to follow as the ball kidding guy, but actually Ryan Sheriff came in after that, and it just kind of turned ugly. Um, not, not much went well for the Rays uh, pitching-wise. Just everything they tried to do uh, wasn't working very well. So... They end up getting swept in Washington in the two-game series. Uh, they, of course, losing 4-3 to three on Tuesday night uh, give, after Rich Hill gave up four runs, uh, was tipping his pitches, according to him. Uh, but the race just couldn't battle back enough. And they lose 15-6 on Wednesday. So they have an off day now, and then they're in Buffalo to face the Blue Jays this weekend. As the road trip continues, and it's the halfway mark of the season now, the Rays are 47 and 34, 13 games above 500 as they hit the halfway mark. And earlier on Wednesday, before they played game 81, I had a chance to sit down with Rays pre and post game host Neil Solance to talk about the mid season report card for the Tampa Bay Rays. All right, Neil Solance joins us now as we're taping this, uh, what is this, Wednesday morning. So it's before Wednesday afternoon's game, which at the conclusion of that game, we'll be at the midseason point of the season, game 81. So through 80 games, the Rays are 47 and 33, 14 games above 500. Of course, they had a, a, a huge win streak in the middle of there, and then they had a seven-game losing streak a couple weeks ago. But Neil Solance, 14 games above 500 at game 80. How would you rate this season so far? Um, I probably would say, in not knowing any of the particulars surrounding it, probably as you would have anticipated, that the Rays would be a better-than-90 win team, that they've had a chance to win the division, that they'd be in a position where they'd make the postseason. And I think it's a pretty good spot to be in, considering the way I, I look at the second half of the schedule, especially post-All-Star break. I think pre-All-Star break, there's still some really tough games left. But post, you still have 13 of your 19 games at Baltimore. You're 6-0 against them. You haven't played last place Detroit, or I'm sorry, Detroit and Minnesota are two teams that are, you know, more than 10 games under 500. You still have, I think, 13 games with those two teams. Um, you still have a series with the Marlins. You've got a lot of games against sub-500 clubs that I think you can capitalize on, you know, post-All-Star break. And I also think this team is capable of even better baseball than it's played to this point. Well, let's get into some of the particulars then. And Well, actually, let's look around the division first. If you'd have told me at the All-Star break the Rays were, or at about the halfway point of the season, the Rays are 14 games above 500, but in second place in the division, I would have guessed that it was the Yankees that were in first. Maybe Toronto, but Boston? 
Yeah, I, I definitely think they're a surprise. Um, but there are certainly some good reasons for it. You know, they're at the midway point of the season, and they've used basically five starters the whole way through. Tanner Houck, I think, has made two or three starts for them, and that's it. Um, but you're also, you know, they've, so they've had no injuries there. Ryan Brazier is the only injury to the bullpen, and their entire position player core has been healthy. Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, J.D. Martinez, Alex Verdugo, Christian Vasquez, and not only that, but they've all performed at a really high level. Now, for me, I don't think that that's sustainable over a 162-game period. You're going to sustain injuries to your core. Um, or you're starting pitching, which you know most of those guys, uh, whether it's an Evaldi, uh, uh, Martin Perez, um, a, uh, you know, a Nick Pavetta, uh, Nathan, you know, those guys have not, Garrett Richards is struggling right now, those guys have not sustained um, really good numbers over a full season. So I think some of that will come back to the pack. I think probably the number that stands out to me also is Boston leads the majors in uh, runners left on base by their pitching staff. Um, that's also not generally a sustainable number that you're going to be able to do for a full season. Eventually you're going to make some mistakes with runners on base and it's going to cost you. And, you know, I think Boston's schedule is significantly harder in the second half than the Rays. So to be in a position where you're one, two, three games out, wherever it is at the midway point, I think the Rays are still in a pretty good spot. Well, what about those Yankees? They're, what, 41 and 38. General Manager Brian Cashman, and I'm paraphrasing, said we suck right now. They have a run differential of zero. Uh, what do you make of their team this year so far? Um, they've definitely underperformed. You know, because you look at their core lineup guys, and aside from what Aaron Hicks, um, who's out for the year, they've been healthy. I mean, Stanton's been on the field more than you would have anticipated. Judge has been on the field more than you anticipated. LeMayu has underperformed. Gary Sanchez has actually come back somewhat, but Glaber Torres has underperformed. So they've had a lot of guys who have not played as well as you would anticipate among the position player group. I don't think it's a shock that they lost Corey Kluber to injury. I mean, he has not been healthy most of the last couple of years. And, you know, I think the question for them is whether their offense is going to produce to the point that you would anticipate. You know, they've been able to score some runs as they've done recently against the Angels, but against the really good pitching staffs in the league, they've really struggled. Um, and they haven't won against the Rays or the Red Sox. Uh, to any significant uh, measure, and for them to come back in this division, they need to be those two teams and the Blue Jays, who I still think have a pretty good run in them. I think they have the easiest schedule of the four teams that are competing in the East. I still th- uh, uh, not. I don't find it amazing, but you, we know the narrative of the Yankees and how they can hit and <laughs> mash. The Rays have scored seventy more runs than the Yankees have this year. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm so. I think what what the Yankees have become are, well, what they've been all along is they've been extremely one-dimensional. They rely very heavily on the home run ball, and that's been their MO. The problem is they're not hitting the home runs like they have in the past, and whether that's the change in the ball, whether it's guys just underperforming, whether it's a combination, who knows. Um, But, I mean, they're one of the, you know, bottom-tier teams in terms of offense, and... I think actually their pitching, to me, has overperformed a little bit. I think the area where they also struggle 
is on the defensive end. I mean, it's not. I think it's really apparent when they play the Rays on on the turf. Um, their foot speed is lacking. They don't have really good outfielders. They're lacking in terms of having a center fielder. But with the Aaron Hicks injury, they're playing Brett Gardner at times in center field. They've tried Aaron Judge in center field on occasion, and that's not good for his legs. Um, they're missing there, and I, I don't think you know, that they're really sharp on the diamond other than, let's say, a Gio Urshela when he's on his game at third base. Well, let's get back to the Rays, and, and you mentioned defense, and that's one of the things the Rays have prided themselves on for years, and they continue to not give you many extra outs uh, as far as defensively. We've seen, uh, you know, even trading Willie Adamas and bringing up Taylor Walls, who's been fantastic. Uh, Wander Franco's shown some flashes of some great defensive ability, so... You know, we know Kevin Kiermeyer and, and you know, Manny Margot is good, and, and Rosarina can be pretty good. Same with Meadows. G-Man Choi back at first base has really helped. How has that defense really helped this team? I mean, by a lot of the metrics, they're the best defensive team in baseball, and it's by a pretty wide margin. And there have even been stretches, you know, I think when they had that seven-game skid where they didn't play that well defensively. It, and, and I think at times that shows up for them. I think – they have to be a really good defensive ball club to be the kind of team they want to be, you know, especially with, you know, the, the injuries that they have sustained to their pitching staff. You know, when you're, when you're not using all your A guys, um, you need your defense to make a play or two to help your, maybe not your B guys, but your guys who are filling in in certain roles to help them out to uh, limit the amount of outs they truly have to record. And, you know, I think the Rays have been overall have been great at converting outs um, it seems like when you go through a bad stretch, that one play you don't make somehow leads to runs. And it seemed like it happened um, on that you know Chicago-Seattle road trip a lot. I thought they cleaned it up a bit um, on the last homestand. You know they've started out this road trip playing better defense too. Um, you know on the in the Tuesday night game they threw a runner out, Josh Harrison on the bases between third and home. And by and large, they've they've made the routine plays, and it's when they make the the really good plays, you know, that they kind of separate themselves in the pack. Well, let's talk about that pitching that the defense helps out. And Tyler Glass now is out for at least sixty days at this point. Initial reports mm-hmm. were wouldn't be back to the postseason. He's now saying he thinks it'll be before the postseason. Of course, injury rehabs—you never know, and, and you know you can be hopeful, but you have to take it day by day. But how does losing Tyler Glass now impact this pitching staff for the short term? In the short term, before the All-Star break, I think not as much as, let's say, you know, when you get to the after-the-break point. Um, you know, I think because they have these off days built in, you know, the off day on Thursday after the off day Monday, and then another off day the last week before the All-Star break, you know, you can finagle your pitching staff around and, and kind of modify things, and that'll help you know, going in and coming out of the break. But, you know, obviously you're talking about a guy who's one of the best pitchers in the game, and you don't replace someone like that with one guy. You know, you have to do it with a group of guys. And I think the Rays knew coming into this season that that was kind of going to have to be their MO, that they were going to use a lot of pitchers. Look, as great as Tyler was, he's still never thrown more than 160 innings in a given season. So you have to assume that there was going to be some sort of blip on the radar. You know, the, now you hope that the blip means that he's back. You know, Masahiro Tanaka, I think, had a similar procedure rehab and came back in 10 weeks, which if Tyler Glass now is in phenomenal shape can do that, would be back around the 1st of September. Let's hope that's the case, because if it does, 
you know, I think it puts the Rays in a great position down the stretch. Um, in the meantime, I think they do have enough pitching to cover for him. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm not I know you know Michael Walker obviously is pitching in his so so to speak pitching in his spot, but I think they've got a lot of depth down in Durham that if there is a need, they've got guys they they trust that they believe can help out, and you know who knows they may make a trade at some point before the deadline. Rich Hills, 41 years old, um, won Pitcher of the Month in May. His last start on Tuesday night, uh, looks like he was tipping pitches for a couple innings, cleaned that up, and, and ended up staying in the game for quite a while, actually, and kept the Rays in that ball game and ate up a lot of innings, too, so you didn't have to go to the bullpen as early. But what's his performance been? I mean, I, I, for me, he's per, way overperformed what I expected this season. I, I would say definitely yes in terms of you know the types of innings he's giving you, like – if you would have told me his numbers would be for the year what they are now, I would have said that's great. He's giving you what ninety innings. You know, I was hoping you know he'd give around a hundred or so, and he's done that. You know, at the midway point of the season uh, or thereabouts. You know, I think he's in the eighty-ish area. You know, if if right now I guess he's on a pace for low one sixties, which would be the second most he's ever thrown. Way back in two thousand seven, I think he had one hundred ninety-five innings. You know, he's thrown one hundred thirty-five recently. So there may be times where the Rays, you know, have to be careful or smart with them. But then I also look at the fact that, you know, Charlie Morton had the same M.O., that he couldn't stay healthy and make 30 starts. And all of a sudden he made his most starts with the Rays. I think as a, as a you know, we've talked, I think, at times about the medical staff here and the training staff. They do a great job with recovery. They do a great job with monitoring not only how much guys throw in games, but how much they throw in between starts. Their, their their shoulder programs, they're really, really good at it. And and maybe because of that, a guy like a Rich Hill is able to give the Rays a good 160 innings. I certainly hope so, but I also think that, again, there's depth available uh, if needed where the Rays can draw from. Well, let's look at the other, and we'll say starters, because sometimes they follow an opener. Hmm. But you've got, what, Ryan Yarborough, you've got Michael Waka. You know, how have, how have all those guys done and how would you rate the starting pitching staff? You know, I think it's been good. Um, you know, obviously Glass now made it a tier above. You know, I think, you know, Ryan Yarbrough, who's been an innings eater, he's been the, the the durable guy on the staff. And I think going into the year, I think that was probably an expectation. Um, I think for Michael Waka, it was a slow start. Um, and then he had a really good outing against Boston. And he was a guy that I, I think a lot of people were excited about what he could bring to the table and how the Rays could, quote-unquote, maybe fix him a little bit. And, you know, I think he's been, um, a, or he is a guy who I think could take a, hopefully a major step forward in the second half. Uh, Josh Fleming has been just as good as he was last year, which is tremendous. And uh, the Rays have been really careful monitoring his innings. He's kind of on a page for 120, 130. Um, and then Shane McClanahan, um, I think the Rays have been careful with his innings early, and he's on about a 100-inning pace. But I think the Rays did that with the, the mindset that he could handle a lot more in the second half and they could push it with him. And to me, he's you know he's a guy who um, can really be a top-of-the-rotation guy. And, and I think that his maturity and growth in the second half is going to be a big part of you know, how the Rays hopefully take a step forward. And then you've got guys down in Durham like Luis Patino, who I think also can help in the second half. And that's that, to me, is the reason for optimism. And look, they've gotten um, just a handful of innings from Chris Archer so far, and he's now 
throwing the hitters later this week. So, you know, I, I think they do have the ability to, and Brendan McKay threw a, um, two innings in a, 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 what used to be the Florida Gulf Coast League, now the Complex League, threw a couple innings on Tuesday. So it looks like they've got a fair amount of reinforcements, and that's, again, without the possibility of adding via trade. You know, it's funny, you you know, the Rays hit that hot streak and, and separated from being 500 to being, you know, 14, 15, 16 games above 500. And you kind of forgot about Chris Archer on the staff. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've kind of forgot about Brendan McKay down in, in, in Durham. Um, and, and, you know, he was, you know, added a lot of innings the last couple seasons for Tampa Bay. So you kind of forget some of those reinforcements are down there. So You, you do. You do. And, and that's, you know, they don't have to have those guys – be great but if those guys provide you good innings you know it's another it's another guy that you have it's another guy who can give you whether it's two innings three innings four innings five innings at at a clip you know of quality and you know i think um what's important to know is you know july and august you're still at a 26-man roster which is one above what you know you played in normal years but then you go to 28 for the month of September. So if you decide you want to, and I don't think there's a limit on number of pitchers. So if you want to carry 15 or 16 pitchers, um, you have the ability to do, to do that at that point in time. Um, and you can add a couple of bulk guys. You can do tandem starts. You can do six-man rotations. You can be really, really creative down the stretch with how you want to use your pitching staff and make sure not only that you're winning games in September, but that your guys have enough gas in the tank for October, too. Well, let's take a look at the bullpen, and they've been without Nick Anderson. Uh, mm-hmm. Chaz Rowe, we just learned, is out for the season now. Uh, mm-hmm. Those were two key cogs, you would have said, in this bullpen at the beginning of the season. You're kind of your A bullpen, your setup guys. Uh, Nick Anderson may be your closer. Um, they've, they've pieced it together, and they've made some acquisitions. You've gotten Drew Rasmussen and J.P. Fireisen in the Willie Adamas trade. Um, you've seen guys like Lewis Head up here. And others. So, how would you rate the bullpen's performance so far in the first half of the season? I think they've been kind of, for me, the anchor of the club. You know, Rich Hill said that the other day, and I think he's right. I mean, there have been so many guys who've stepped up. I mean, look, Pete Fairbanks was down at one point. Diego Castillo was down at one point. You've already mentioned Rowan Anderson. They signed Oliver Drake knowing that he was going to miss the first half of the season, and he's now um, getting close to going on rehab, too, and is throwing bullpens and is doing quite well. If you can get Anderson and Drake back to add to this group, it makes them even that much more formidable because I think that a lot of guys have stepped into larger roles and and really carried the load, and now you can even divide it further. You know, Ryan Thompson had a a little bit of a blip over the weekend um, in the last game against the Angels. and He and Jeffrey Springs and Andrew Kittredge, I think, have been terrific, and you know, another guy who's been very unsung in that bullpen has been Colin McHugh. It seems like whenever they need somebody to come out and give them two, three innings to either settle a game down or bridge a game to the back end of the bullpen, he's been able to do that. And, you know, I, I think that Kevin Cash probably has, instead of having three or four guys you can trust, he's got six or seven guys you can trust in high leverage spots. And if you add a Drake and or an Anderson to that group, I think it makes them that much better. And, you know, you mentioned J.P. Fireyes and Andrew Rasmussen and JP has probably had the bulk of the, the bigger moments, but, you know, I look at this pure stuff that Drew Rasmussen throws and think, boy, why can't he be a really important piece down the stretch like when the Rays got Pete Fairbanks as he was? And again, this is assuming the Rays don't make any more moves um, before the deadline, and I certainly think they're going to find any possible way to improve the club within reason, 
um, you know, as they did in the Willie Adamas trade, knowing they had Taylor Walls, knowing they had Wander Franco, they're going to take from their strengths and try and um, fill in whatever gaps they can to make themselves that much stronger going forward. Well, we saw former Rays manager Joe Madden talk about the Rays and just how many arms and all the pitching they have and just how deep they are. And, you know, as he said, there's no other team in baseball that has those many arms. So um, it's always been the strength of the Rays, and they've really gotten back to that, as Joe Madden, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, said uh, when he was in town recently. So um, the pitching, of course, is what the Rays have always been built on. The offense... Uh, for listeners of this podcast, remember Rick Stroud said this would be the best offense in the history of the Rays this season. So halfway through the season, do you think his prediction is correct? Uh, we're not quite there yet. Um, they've got to pick it up. But, you know, you mentioned the fact that they have they have been a top third of the league offensively. Um, I think people forget sometimes the 2008 team was, I think, third in the majors in runs scored that year. Um, it... it um, you know, it wasn't always, it, it didn't look pretty. And I think sometimes with this group, it doesn't always look pretty, but they managed to score a bunch of runs. Um, I, I think that there's there still is more in there in the tank. We're starting to see Brandon Lau find his stride a little bit. Um, you know, I think Mike Zanino has probably given you more, but I think even Austin Meadows with all the homers and RBIs, I, I think he would say he probably is, um, you know, capable of a little more production. And Wander Franco is starting to find his his way about him so far. So, you know, I think you look at that top of the lineup and, you know, with Jimon Choi and, and the, the way the Rays can rotate parts and match guys up, you know, I definitely think they are capable. For me, as long as they're a top 10 in the league offense, you know, top 10 of the 30 clubs, um, if they pitch it and catch it, they're going to be a team that's going to contend for the top spot in the American League because, I mean, you combine those three pieces, and for me, the only team that I think that is able to play really good defense, pitch it well, and hit it extremely well in the American League to this point has been Houston. Um, so it puts you in, in you know, an elite group if you're able to get to that. Well, let's talk about Mike Zanino, because when the Rays brought him in from Seattle, the expectation was really good defensive catcher, calls a good game, and will run into some occasionally. His first season with the Rays, really good defensively, called a good game, and just seemed like he couldn't do anything at the plate. And the Rays, you know, you know, looked at some other catchers and ended up re-signing Mike Zanino, and it kind of had that Jose Molina feel to him. And I don't want to say he's that, but the, we're just going to have you know an automatic out in the catching spot come up at you know every game. Uh, but you know the catching position, the, the the defense and calling a game is more important. So you understand that. But he's leading this team or tied for the lead in home runs as we tape this podcast. Uh, I think he should be an all star. I, I mean, who did you see this kind of production coming from him offensively? I mean, we know the defensive side of the game, but offensively, I, I think he's definitely given more than he would have anticipated. Um, you know, I I don't think too much of you know, what batting average is for a catcher, because I think I saw the top three catchers in the American League for the all-star votes were Salvador Perez, who obviously has hit well, but it was Martin Maldonado and Yasmani Grandal, and they're both under two, I think, under 200, and they don't have anything close to the homers or RBI numbers that, that Mike has, or they're lower than him OPS-wise, too. You know, I think when... 
I think Mike gave a glimpse of this in the first few series of the postseason. I think he kind of petered out a little bit in the World Series because he was playing every single moment of every single game. Um, I think the, the one thing that has helped him a lot is having had a couple, a couple of years with the Rays, he's comfortable enough with the pitching staff that I think he can continue to do that extremely well while also being able to focus on his offense. He is such a, a good team guy that he's always worked so hard on pitchers first, pitchers first, pitchers first, and that remains his top priority. But I think it does allow you to divert a little more time on the offensive end. And I think that him and Chad Matola have built a really great relationship where there's a trust, and they started to find some things in his swing in the offseason prior to 2020. I think it, it didn't manifest itself in the regular season, but did in the playoffs, and, and it kind of has carried over a bit here. You know, I think when the Rays got him, I think they were hoping for a 20 to 25 homer guy. That's what he was with Seattle, who could run into it now and then. And now you're looking at a guy who's got the ability, or at least the, at the midway point of the season, who's on a pace for well over 30 home runs in a given year. That would be phenomenal, and that would be something that the Rays have never had. Um, and obviously they have a very reasonable option for him for 2022, um, and uh, let's hope this pace keeps up. I think the thing that has helped is having Francisco Mejia as kind of a one-two combo, even though Mejia hasn't kept it up offensively. Just being able to rest Zanino enough has allowed him, I think, to keep his stride going offensively and match him up appropriately. Let's take a look around the, the infield and – you know, we haven't even mentioned Joey Wendell's name yet in this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Who's I, I, I don't want to say Ben Zobris, but he's that utility guy. You can plug him in anywhere, and he's going to be effective. Um, he may be the most consistent hitter the Rays have had this season, as far as his production. Um, Yandy Diaz struggling to get home runs still, but gives you a great at bat. G Man Choi's now back. Um, you've got Brendan Lau, who's finally starting to heat up after, you know, he struggled early in the season. He's still struggling against left-handers, um, which last year he was very successful against. So it's always one of those weird things in baseball. Um, you add Taylor Walls, you add Wander Franco. So, I, I mean, you know, how are they going to keep divvying up the playing time in the infield? And, and how, you know, and how do you see that production ramping up for the rest of the season? You know, I think they're going to be really smart. You know, I I think that they'll have the ability to match guys up in the best way possible. I think, you know, Kevin Cash, you know, they know that there are going to be guys, too, that are going to get injured. I mean, we've talked about how the Red Sox are the fortunate they have. it. the Rays have had now, you know, Taylor Walls comes back off the injured list um, this uh, this weekend, and... You know, they've had injuries in their outfield, or they've had injuries twice to Jimon Choi. You know, Yanni Diaz has been healthy, but, you know, he has a history of getting hurt. You know, Joey Wendell has been on the IL in the past a few times. So you have to anticipate you're going to get some injuries. And in the meanwhile, if you have all of them healthy starting this weekend through the All-Star break, you can start to, you know, really put guys in the best position to succeed. You know, I think, um, and I think Kevin Cash has always said this, if you're not in my starting lineup, that doesn't mean you're not playing. He utilizes his bench as well as anybody, and I think guys are prepared to play. So, you know, Joey Wendell could be off the first part of the game against a lefty and come in off the bench against a righty thereafter and play an important role. And I think, you know, I think Jimon Choi entered the, the Wednesday game five for six as a pinch hitter. Um, you know, being prepared to come in off the bench, I think, is critically important. You know, and I think that 
you know, as this infield takes off, one of the things is from an offensive standpoint, you know, I think Wander Franco showed a glimpse of what he's capable of on that first night. He'd been kind of quiet since. He hasn't, other than one game, he hasn't really struck out. Uh, I think he's struck out twice in all the games but the one where he fanned three times when Nick Bavetta was really, really good. Um, so he's put the ball in play, and now it's a matter of, you know, getting a little more what I would call uh, luck with the geometry and, and, and starting to feel really confident and good about yourself offensively. In the outfield, of course, Austin Meadows is one of the top RBI guys in baseball. Uh, he's also tied at the top spot for home runs on this team. Uh, Randy Rosarina is having a good season. Um, you know, I think expectations were probably a little high for him going into the season based on the postseason he had. And, you know, those kind of production levels are not sustainable over a course of a 162-game schedule. Uh, you got Kevin Kiermaier. Brett Phillips has had some big hits. Manuel Margot. Um, you know, how how are they going to continue to divvy up the outfield time, too? I think similarly, you know, I think if you look at um, the overall outfield production, I think from an from a defensive standpoint, it's been as good as you can ask. I mean, I think Manuel Margot is is leading the Rays in his top five in baseball in terms of defensive run save. Randy Rosarena is among the better left fielders in the game right now in terms of defensive run saved. And Brett Phillips and Kevin Kiermaier have given what you would anticipate in center. Aside from the homers and RBIs from Austin Meadows, I do think that offensively they haven't done as well as you would anticipate. You know, I know that Kevin Kiermaier is a defensive player first, but I think he'd be first to tell you that you know he has not performed to his capabilities offensively. Randy Rosarena, I agree the expectations were through the roof and should not have been, but you know I think I said at the beginning of the year if he hit twenty some homers, drove in seventy plus runs and had an 800-plus OPS, I think you'd be pleased. I think he's been kind of hovering in that 760 area. So there's certainly room for improvement here in the second half of the schedule. And I think even though it meant, well, Margot has been great defensively, and he's driven in more than 40 runs, so that's an 80-plus RBI pace. That's great. And, you know, probably in that 15-homer area, um, you know, also from his standpoint, his OPS is under 700. So um, I, I think there probably are three or four guys among the outfielders who could be better offensively. And that kind of speaks to Rick Stroud's point about, you know, being a, you know, a, a, one of the better offensive teams. I think if the, the outfielders um, pick it up and Wander picks it up on the infield from an offensive standpoint, yes, then this can be an elite offensive team. All right. The all-star break is uh, what a week and a half away or so. Uh, Kevin mm-hmm. Cash will be the manager of the American league side as the American League champions last year. Tyler Glasnow's hurt now. Uh, he was probably a as close to a, a lock to be an all-star as the Rays have. So who is your all-star representative or representatives from the Rays this year? That's a good question. And it's so confusing because, you know, he used to be um, a lot easier in terms of how everything was handled. We know that the Rays won't have a starter voted in. And because they didn't have anyone in the finalists. And now it comes, okay, who have the players voted in? How many spots are left? Obviously, you have to have at least a representative. Are the players going to vote Tyler Glass now in? And if not, do you just find a replacement? And is that replacement Rich Hill, which would be a great story at 41? You know, I think it would be a great story if Andrew Kittredge made the All-Star team. He's pitching every inning from the 1st through the 11th. He's got, you know, an ERA of one and change. He's coming back from um, 
maybe not the same procedure as Tyler Glass now, but something similar where he avoided Tommy John, came back, and is throwing the ball as well as anyone on the Rays staff and has been so valuable in that bullpen. You know, you mentioned Joey Wendell. He's been a glue guy. You mentioned Mike Zanino. I think he definitely should be an all-star. I would hope that a group that's been near the top of the American League most of this first half has multiple members of the all-star team. That remains to be seen. But I definitely think the Rays have several guys who are certainly deserving. Oh, we'll get you out on this, and this has kind of been the story of baseball for the last two weeks, but the crackdown on the sticky tack or sticky substances and the the checks of the pitchers coming off the mound and, and everything that's gone on. One, what is just your thoughts on this, particularly changing midseason, which is what I think is bizarre about it. But two, you know, what impact have you seen on the Rays and around baseball that this has had so far? That's hard to say. It's hard to quantify how much of an impact it's had. Um, You know, some people say offense is up since that point. Okay. Um, You know, it's, it's kind of a small sample size. And generally, offense is up in June, in July, in August, and September. It usually is a progressive thing throughout the course of the year. Pitchers get tired. Hitters get better. Um, Was that inevitable or is this because of some of the changes? I don't know what to make of that. I I don't know that it has a tremendous effect on the Rays pitching staff overall other than the glass now injury, and I do think there are going to be other pitchers, unfortunately, across baseball who do get injured um, because they're, you know, the the physics and the science of changing your grip um, is, is going to put pressure on certain parts of your arm that you weren't putting pressure on. It's going to impact, you know, anytime you make a change in, in some sort of action, um, physically, it can cause you know other muscles to be affected. So that's a reasonable understanding or expectation. I wish that they had a universal tacky baseball and universal tacky substance. Um, you know, I I I think that for me, all the talk of the what substance is used isn't used helps doesn't help. It takes away from. Um, so many good things going on with the game. You know, the spray of the Rays, Wander Franco, you know, home ring in his big league debut, Shohei Otani and, and the, you know, the great search he's been on. I really do believe that the athleticism and the talent in the game is as good as it's ever been in terms of the young talent across the board. The year Vladdy Jr. is having, it, it kind of gets overshadowed um, by, by this talk. And, and, and I hope that nationally, um, and, you know, more of the talk is just about how good, you know, how good the players are and how good the talent is, because, you know, that to me is what I've enjoyed watching and, and, and seeing happen, you know, for the, for the last several years, I do think the talent's gotten better across the board. He's Neil Solance, the host of the pre and post game show for the Rays radio network. You hear him on every broadcast and now you can see him again as watch parties are back for the Rays radio network. I was with you on Tuesday night at one and we'll be out Saturday as well. Um, so, uh, if you, uh, want to catch a raise radio broadcast and get, win some tickets and swag in that, check out, uh, what is it? Raisebaseball.com slash radio. They can do that or they can go to facebook.com slash raise and click on the events page and all of our watch parties are up there too. Fantastic. So catch, uh, Neil on the pre and post game show and go see him at a watch party and enjoy your off day on Thursday. Operation shutdown day, Neil. Uh, Operation semi-shutdown, 
there's never a full shutdown for me. I hate to say that. No, there and, definitely and, isn't. And he's on the road. He can have shutdown. I, I, I'm at home, so I've got two kids so, um, and my wife. So there's probably something to do. I can guarantee you that. Excellent. Well, we'll catch you this weekend on the broadcast. Thank you, Neil. Thanks, of course. That'll do it for tonight's podcast uh, for the vacationing Rick Stroud. I'm Steve Versnick. It's an off day for both the Rays and the Lightning today, so you can get ready for Friday when the Rays are in uh, Buffalo to take on the Blue Jays and the Lightning are in Montreal to take on the Canadians in Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final. For the Vacationing Rick Stroud, I'm Steve Versnick. Have a great day, everybody. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.